Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The situation in Ukraine now, as the country has begun its sixth month of war with Russia, some of the experts, quote-unquote, were saying before it started, just before it started in February, that uh, the war would be over in three days, and the Ukrainians are punching above their weight. They've certainly had a great deal of assistance as far as weapons are concerned from the West, maybe not as much as they should have received, but they are six months into this. So we'll talk to the, uh, the former chief of defense staff, General Rick Hillier. He's back with us on the program. General, how are you? Hey, Roy. I'm, I'm well. Thanks very much for having me back. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back on the program. What's your assessment, General, of Ukraine's military performance against Russia over the six months? Well, I would say, first of all, it's kind of interesting to look at and see what they've accomplished. But the one word I would use is inspirational. Uh, their courage, their imagination, their innovation, uh, their dedication, their persistence, uh, their absolute determination to protect their families, defend their villages, and drive Russian troops out of their country is just absolutely inspirational. And, and they're doing that at great, great cost, all except the last part. They're not driving the Russian troops out of their country yet, and they need more assistance to be able to do that. But, oh my goodness, they have been innovative with use of equipments, with drones, with intelligence, with special forces, in a way that I think most professional Western military forces simply could not be. They are inspirational, and I had an opportunity to visit and, and meet a lot of their troops and commanders and soldiers, and oh my goodness, their courage, their valor is second to none. Inspirational. Yeah, General, we had uh, the opportunity to speak with one Ukrainian soldier, and uh, he had fought in 2014 and lost an eye in that uh, in those battles. And he started fighting again in February when the Russians invaded. And he was, while we were speaking with him, recovering from wounds he'd suffered in the most recent fighting. And he was so determined, uh, you could just hear it in his voice, he wasn't going to stop. His commitment is complete to his country. And what made it particularly interesting to me is he wasn't native-born Ukrainian. He was Afghan, and he come to Ukraine, I think in his earlier mid-twenties, so he's lived a life where he really hasn't known anything but war, but he's so determined and so patriotic Ukrainian, it was inspiring to talk to him. Well, you know, Roy, he's obviously found an home, and he's obviously determined to defend that home and to protect the people in it, and God bless him for doing so. Uh, like I say, they, they're inspirational in their courage to do it. And they need some support. They need more equipment. They need a whole bunch of things more from the West and much faster. Uh, but they've proven, I think, in the last six months that when they get the assistance, when they get the equipment to be able to fight against this superpower whose brutal invasion is destroying their country and killing their men and women and children, that they can actually fight and win. But they need the equipment. And there are tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of more like him, right from President Zelensky uh, right down to the most young or old individual in the village who says, I'm, I'm going to look after my family, I'm going to look after this village, and I'm not going to let the Russians win. They can do it, but they need the support. Fairly early on in the war, General, you were on the air with me, and that was at the time there was a big debate going on about whether NATO should provide, supply air support for Ukraine. And you said, and I remember your quote exactly, I asked you whether you would support that, and you said, in a heartbeat, is it still necessary? Well, Roy... I said that, and obviously nobody else did or believed it because we didn't do it. 
Uh, yes, I, I, I believed it then. There are really three ways of, of making sure that you've got a protective zone over Ukraine. Number one is NATO do it. Uh, number one is provide the Ukraine or Ukraine sufficient ground-based air defense missiles like the Stinger to be able to make it a, an absolutely no-go zone for Russian aircraft, so provide it that way. And the third way is to provide that combination of ground-based air defense systems and better fighter aircraft like the F-16 or indeed the F-18 uh, to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian Defense Forces, and let them provide that uh, air exclusion zone for their country so their ground troops, so their citizens are not worried about Russian aircraft and or missiles. But I think also the definition of uh, giving that sort of air exclusion zone has changed now. And we're not just talking fighter planes and bombers anymore. Now we're talking drones, hundreds and thousands of drones in the air every single day, some of them just doing reconnaissance, reporting back, allowing artillery to strike a target, allowing intelligence to send in special forces, or in fact drones that go in and kill things themselves. And we've all seen, I'm sure, a video of that. But there are many ways to do it, and I think right now we're in the second and third way. Get Ukraine even more ground-based air defense systems like those Stingers, thousands upon thousands of them, and let's convert the Ukrainian defense forces to an aircraft, a modern Western aircraft like the F-16 or the F-18. There are literally hundreds and thousands available, and, and it's easy, you know, not easy to do. But it's a process that we know from training pilots for years and years and years on how to fly and then fight those air aircraft. And that's, I think, what the next step is for Ukraine. Okay. General Hillier, if I can step sideways here and ask you about something else that's going on. So Russia and China have most recently decided to be friends again, at least uh, it appears that way, and they're holding joint war exercises in Russia's eastern region today and in the Sea of Japan. By tomorrow, we're into day four of these war exercises. What's the message being sent by Russia and China? And we had the NATO uh, Secretary General in this country warning about Russia and China's interest in our north, and we're hardly prepared to defend it, given the, the, the supplies our troops have. So what do you make of the Russia-China alliance, if that's what it is? Well, I think there's a geopolitical strategic affairs being played out as in, in front of us. And I don't think Russia and China are friends or going to be friends at all. It's just at this point in time, their common interests align. And they both want to keep the United States of America and NATO off balance for their own reasons. Russia for Ukraine and other things, China for Taiwan and other things. And by exercising together, operating together, conducting simulated war games together, they can do some of that for sure. But, you know, it's not just Russia and China that can play at these games too. NATO and the United States of America have been very astute at doing these kinds of things. And look at right now, the United States with India will conduct joint exercises, operational training inside of India, up relatively close to the Indian-Chinese border. So a multitude of, you know, many countries can play at this. And Russia and China are doing it certainly to rattle the West's cage for their own purposes, for sure. As regards to the North, I'm just absolutely shocked that Putin and the Russians haven't done something so far to throw, you know, uh, throw the, the cart off the tracks here, so to speak here, that we haven't had a Russian submarine or submarines all of a sudden pop up on the North Pole, break through the ice and say, hey, put up the Russian flag, hey, this is our, this is our land and we're going to keep it kind of thing. 
uh, you know, many countries around the world would would not support most probably would not support Canada and Canada saying it's our territory. That that issue is very much internationally in question. And I think Russia could actually cause a lot of consternation by doing something like that. They'll do it if they think there's an advantage to it. If they think it controls Canada and NATO and the United States off their game and get them focused there instead of in Ukraine or Eastern Europe. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Russia make a move in the north. So let me ask you, General, what uh, what is necessary in the way of funding and equipment for our Canadian armed forces to be uh, more than just a chicane to a potential adversary like China or Russia? Hey, Roy, you don't have two hours for me to go on about what is necessary. Let me give you two things, though. Number one is number one is you got to sort out that procurement process. You know, the Department of National Defense has, over the last five and a half years, has turned in $12 billion, turned back $12 billion to the government of Canada that were allocated to Canadian forces to spend to buy things that our troops need, our sailors need, our airmen need, our airmen and airwomen need, our special forces troopers need, and to do the jobs we asked them to do, and yet we couldn't get them procured because of the procurement system and its bureaucratic approach to things. If we don't sort that out, no matter how much money we give to the Canadian Armed Forces, it will be wasted, it will be turned back in, and we won't achieve what we need to do. If we could sort that out, and I'm not talking about creating a, a separate defense agency, that's all malarkey. What we need to do is have political emphasis that we need to have a Canadian forces that is operationally ready, appropriately equipped for the tasks that we asked them to do, and with the number of men and women that can do the job to do those tasks. And if a prime minister with cabinet orders that to occur to the individual departments, gives them timelines, tell them the number one priority is for operational effect as opposed to you know jobs across Canada and all those other kinds of things, which are good, but that's not the number one job. Well, we can actually achieve this. We did it before when we bought the C-17, when we bought the C-130 airplanes, when we bought the Chinook helicopters and the tanks, and we can do it again. And then the second thing is we need to double the defense budget. 2% in, in, in of, of our GDP as the NATO goal is would be you know really close to doing that. But we have capabilities that we, that we desperately need and are simply not available in our intelligence, in our cyber community. Power projection, and what I mean by that is, you know, Navy ships that carry big assault boats, put a battalion on board, a hospital, a headquarters, special forces capability, and be able to project people ashore and off coast like we did in Croatia and Bosnia in the 90s and other places around us. We have none of those capabilities, and almost every single other Western nation in NATO does. And we should look to them and say, well, they've got, there's obviously a rationale why they have it. Those are some of the things we need. We need more people. You know, the army is, if you could, all the people in the, in the army, the active duty people, you could put them in Lansdowne Park in Ottawa, and you still have 5,000 seats left empty. That's a precious small number for a country like Canada, the G7. We need to double the defense budget for sure. Double it. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.